thank you guys uh, for having us. We felt uh, very uh, loved and welcomed, and we appreciate that. And so um, <clears throat> this morning we're doing uh, session three of uh, four sessions that uh, I am speaking on just on an overview, theological overview. Um, and so I know a lot of you who has not been here for session one and two is not so a fairly substantial number. And uh, I apologize. Uh, a lot of it's directly ap applicable, but uh, uh, without reviewing the first two sessions, but uh, just as a short review, uh, we started with Genesis 1-1 on uh, Friday night and uh, just working through the nature of the heavens and the earth uh, throughout scripture and how it was viewed in the scriptures as plural and substantial and and there's continuity between the heavens and the earth and and uh, so therefore you know people could go up and come down and Jesus went up and will return and come down and and just working through uh, how they viewed the heavens and the earth as a foundation for how they viewed the restoration of all things and a theology of a new heavens and new earth. And then so this set a foundation for belief in the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection of the body upon a new earth rather than the eternal existence of the soul in uh, an immaterial heaven. And so those that basic theological framework uh, makes a radical difference and how you interpret scripture, what the end game is that you see your own life and the future of the earth, whether it is floating on a cloud with a harp eternally or it's on a new earth with a resurrected body. This makes a very large difference day in and day out on how you relate to the issue of death and suffering and evil just because everybody's dealing with it. And so, um, so that was... Friday night, and then last night we worked through the nature of messianic hope within that framework of a new heavens and new earth that we're looking forward to, and that the Messiah was seen uh, as the means that the Lord would use to restore the heavens and the earth and execute the day of the Lord to punish the wicked, to punish the wicked, and uh, and uh, deliver creation from its bondage. Uh, under the leadership of the children of God in the resurrection at the return of Jesus. And so then we briefly touched on last night also that uh, ultimately the hope, isn't, uh, the hope isn't the ultimate issue because the Pharisees had the same hope. On the day of the Lord, it is the nature of righteousness before God and how, how do we relate in our own depravity to God and His holiness and how do you uh, how do you survive the day of the Lord? How, what what when you stand before God openly at the return of Jesus and His appearing in Revelation? What do you say? What how do you present yourself? I mean, you just you think through that scenario that Jesus is going to descend with fire and angels, and He's going to gather everybody before Him, and what's going to happen then? Like, what are you going to do? And so this was the nature of the issue at the first coming, that the Messiah had to suffer as a sacrifice for the sins of man before entering into his glory at the second coming, 
when the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so, um, so today I want to work through uh, just the nature of that day at the return of Jesus and what will be revealed on that day and, and what will uh, the, uh, the specifics of how that will unfold. And so how that will unfold is that the day of the Lord is uh, the judgment on the day of the Lord to the fallenness of man and the depravity of man will take, it'll be a three-part process. And the judgment will begin at the heart level and motivations, the desires of men, and the wickedness of the desires of men. And then it will move to the head level and the beliefs which express themselves in words, because what we believe we confess and say, and, and judgment will, uh, will uh, expose the words of men and what they have said and believed, and they'll move to the hand and the deeds of men. And so uh, human beings will, judge, will be judged at the return of Jesus Heart, head, and hand, so to say. Motivations, uh, beliefs, and confessions, and deeds. And so uh, Romans 2, but because of your, if you look on your notes, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> let's uh, right before that, Mark 7. Uh, and this is kind of, this is one of those things that in the depravity of man, we reverse because we don't want to deal with the reality inside of us. And uh, it's funny when you have kids and they, um, you know, as, as adults, you view a two-year-old and you go, obviously, human, human beings are depraved, right? And then they reach five or six and you're explaining to them the nature of the human predicament and, uh, and the nature of the cross and the return of Jesus. And they begin to recognize their own sin and their own depravity. And they make a confession, but you know that along the way, they're going to grow in that self-recognition, and they become teenagers, and they re-recognize their need for the grace of God and mercy, and then they become adults, and other stuff happens, and pressures continue to increase, and their depravity expresses itself, and, and people come to new self-realizations, and so... A friend of mine uh, uses a diagram that I love, and you can think of human beings at, in conversion as two lines going along. And before conversion, we just see ourselves and God as pretty much the same. We're good, right? And then at conversion, those two lines diverge, and there's a recognition of our own sinfulness and depravity and the holiness of God. And we recognize the mercy of God extended to us in the cross to, to bridge that gap. But what ends up happening is that uh, many times we begin to walk in delusion and we think that at that first recognition of our depravity and the holiness of God, that was that, except the... Uh, uh, Discipleship under the Holy Spirit only continues that trajectory in which he brings us into a greater recognition as the events of life unfold and pressures mount and things happen and we 
recognize our own depravity more and more, and the Holy Spirit reveals the holiness and righteousness of God more and more. And the cross becomes magnified in bridging the gap between the depravity of man and the holiness of God more and more. And the gratitude uh, and revelation of the mercy of God and gratitude grows in our hearts more and more. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish. We don't, uh, you know, we don't give our lives to the Lord in uh, junior high or in college or whenever and then well, we're, we're done with the depravity bit, right? Uh, no, it's by the end of your life that, you, uh, that the path of discipleship should ultimately express itself in the confession of Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. And so, um, <clears throat> and so Mark 7, uh, all human beings, all of us have been born into a situation as children of Adam and Eve in which we are under sin, in which we are uh, in a situation that we don't really grasp the sobriety of and the reality of. And we don't really grasp uh, who we are. <laughs> and the world thinks, you know, us and God, we're good. Everything's good. But... Uh, Everything actually comes out of the heart. And in the depravity of man, we reverse the order and think that our hearts are basically neutral or good, right? And if we could just get what's in our head down to our heart, you know, if we could just do, you know, fix all of our external environment and then our hearts will be good. And that's not, that's not the situation of human depravity. Human depravity is an issue of the wickedness of the heart is beyond measure. And everything comes out of the heart. It doesn't go the other direction. And this makes a lot of difference in how you relate to God and how you relate to other human beings and their depravity. And so Mark 7, for from within, out of men's hearts, out of men's hearts and their desires and their motivations, come their thoughts and how they process and what they believe. And men believe lies because they want to believe them because it satisfies the desires of their heart and then out of their thoughts comes their deeds and sexual immorality theft murder adultery greed malice deceit lewdness envy slander arrogance and folly all of these evils come from inside and make a man unclean and so this is the nature of the day of the lord when jesus christ is revealed is that the motives of men's hearts will be exposed as Romans 2 says in 1 Corinthians 4, as Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And then out of men's hearts, when we stand before God and, and uh, give an account of our lives, we'll be judged not just what we wanted and we desired, uh, but what we believed and confessed. And so Matthew 12, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings out things, uh, brings good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. 
And then Romans 10 is the opposite of that as, as far as uh, confession of, of uh, righteousness rather than the overflow of, of wickedness. That is the word of faith we're proclaiming that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead as a first fruits, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so uh, what the Lord desires is that human beings uh, desire truth and righteousness and the motivation and that they believe and speak truth and righteousness and then their deeds, they walk out. They walk in truth and righteousness. And, uh, and so... Uh, it's not just a matter of orthodoxy and believing the right thing and confessing the right thing. And it's not even a matter of orthopraxis and doing the right thing and having the right lifestyle. Uh, but it's a matter of orthocardia, having a right heart and right motivations. And, uh, and uh, so the beginning of having a right heart is the acknowledgement of the state that we're in and uh, genuineness and authenticity uh, before God and, and others. And so uh, page 2, <clears throat> you have Matthew 16 as far as uh, the Lord. Matthew 16 is where Jesus is uh, asking, Who do others say that I am? And, and uh, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because this is not revealed by man, but by the Holy Spirit. Um, <clears throat> because the, the controversy is over if Jesus is actually the Messiah, since the angels haven't come, and he's not dividing out the nations, and the lake of fire outside of Jerusalem isn't opened up yet. And so, and so Peter says, we believe you're that guy, and the Lord's going to anoint you. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and so then he says... But from that time on, he warned them that he must go up to Jerusalem and, and uh, be killed by the chief priests, and on the third day be raised from the dead. And Peter pulls him aside and says, Never, Lord, uh, this won't happen to you. And he says, You don't have in mind the things of God and the motivations of God and the ways of God, but you have in mind the ways of the world and self-exaltation and... And, uh, and so if anyone's to come after me and inherit the kingdom and the resurrection, he has to deny himself. And so the self begins at the heart level and then and deny wicked motivations and desires of self-exaltation. And then it extends to the mind and we take captive every thought. And then it extends to the deed and we live in self-control and righteousness uh, before God and others. And then he picks up in verse 25, whoever wants to save his life, whoever uh, desires uh, uh, whatever, uh, so he wants to save his life, will lose it at the day of the Lord in the resurrection. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. For what good is it for a man if he gains the whole world in this age, yet forfeits his soul? at the day of the Lord, and he does not receive the salvation of his soul in the resurrection. Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory and with his angels. Then he'll reward each person according to what he's done. 
In Revelation 22, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he's done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter into the city by the gates. And, and so this was the issue at the first coming with the Pharisees, is they, uh, they didn't actually believe in the day of the Lord. And they didn't actually, because human beings in their depravity, we walk in self-delusion of our own righteousness. And uh, the funny thing is, is that because the hope, we, we've, we've perverted the hope of a new earth and the resurrection, and we believe in the immaterial heavenly destiny over the last 1,600, 1,700 years, since the hope's been perverted, then the model of discipleship has been perverted. And so we equip people for heaven to dwell on a cloud, and we organize the church and everything we do around the eternal sing-along in the sky. And, uh, and we don't really, we come up with arbitrary manuals of discipleship that are loosely based on the law, but not really. They function in various codes of conduct or monastic rules or books of uh, discipleship or discipline. And, uh, and they're actually weak and fairly impotent models of discipleship. The law is an extremely uh, 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 holistic model and, and means of discipleship in context to the age to come. And, uh, and so the Pharisees actually had a discipleship cult that was par excellence. There's really never been a discipleship movement in light of the age to come like the Pharisees. They, and this is the irony of the cross and the confrontation of the, the contention of the cross is that the height of man in his own righteousness God humiliates that in light of the cross. And so the issues of the Pharisees is that they were preparing for the day of the Lord, yet they didn't. Uh, they were walking in self-delusion concerning, well, we are going to be discipled in this way in light of the day of the Lord, but it was all uh, external. And there was no recognition that the day of the Lord would ultimately judge the depravity of man inwardly and the internal motivations. And so the issue with the Pharisee was not their lifestyle and their deeds. It was not that. And it was not their hope in the coming of the Messiah and the age to come. They had the same hope as Paul. They had a right hope and they had a right lifestyle and they had a right confession they believed in judgment, eternal judgment. They believed in the resurrection. They believed in angels. It was the issue of the heart and the motivation behind it that is, uh, that's being exposed. And so, like in Matthew 23, He says, uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside is full of greed and selfishness. Blind Pharisees, 
First clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. On the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And so this is uh, this was the... Uh, issue of the Pharisees when John the Baptist comes along preaching that the Messiah is coming with a winnowing fork in his hand. He's going he's going to thresh the wheat, which are believers in the day of the Lord, and the wicked are going to be like chaff and consumed, and the righteous are going to be gathered into the barn, into the uh, into the kingdom. And so. Um, he looks at the crowds coming out and other, the parallel versions say, uh, looks at the Pharisees and says, you brood of vipers. And so he's quoting Isaiah 56 and Psalm 140. You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And so when we seek reform in the church, and, and I, I'm, a, I'm a Reformation guy, I'm a reform guy. And so over the years, this has been the conundrum of how do you seek reform? And, and you can hold theology conferences and teach the right doctrines. You can hold missions, seminars, and teach how you should do things, how the church should function. This is how they did it in the books of, book of Acts. This is how we should do it in our church. This is why they met in houses like this. This is why they organized their worship like this, 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 and this. But ultimately, if you don't confront the issues of the heart and repentance, then people will never accept the truth. They'll never accept the truth, and they'll never walk out the truth. And so ultimately, reform begins in the heart with repentance and change according to the Holy Spirit, and then it extends to the mind by the Holy Spirit and revelation of truth and righteousness, and then it extends to the lifestyle and way we function in our own lives in righteousness and in the church together uh, in righteousness and relate to each other in dignity in light of the day of the Lord. <clears throat> and so, uh, so John is saying to the Pharisees, produce fruit, right? Uh, produce fruit in what you say, out of what you believe and produce fruit in your lifestyle uh, in keeping with repentance. And so clean the inside and then walk out clean, cleanness on the outside. But what ends up happening, and this is common to the state of man, is that the outside gets cleaned because we don't want to deal with the reality of who we are. That's just what it comes down to. And we don't want to deal with uh, the ugliness inside. And we don't want to deal with the humiliation of the ugliness inside. And, that's, uh, and so then you end up with an outside that's clean and you have a culture that's developed within a group of people that the outside is clean but the inside is not so much. And, uh, and the delusion functions that that culture of people believe that they... Uh, maybe other people will be saved on the day of the Lord. Maybe. If the Lord's generous. But probably they're the only ones that are going to be saved. Probably. <laughs> and that's how that culture goes. 
And so, and uh, that's not uh, that's not unique to the Pharisees. They actually did it better than any of the monastic cults or pietistic cults that come after them. So, um, <clears throat> so people often ask me, "What do you do in light of a theology of the day of the Lord and the return of Jesus?" And it's extremely easy. You recognize the judgment to come. You repent of your own wickedness and produce fruit in keeping with that. And really every single time where the revelation of Jesus or the appearing of Jesus or the day of Christ Jesus is spoken of, then immediately after that, whether it's, whether it's you know, Ephesians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, Colossians 3, almost every time, First Peter 4, you have just a list of this is how you should function in repentance and love and righteousness in light of the day of the Lord. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then uh, Matthew 7 is really the ultimate indictment against the Pharisees because the whole Sermon on the Mount is not an issue of, you know, we need to fast and pray and do acts of righteousness more. It's the, if your righteousness is doesn't extend beyond the Pharisees and teachers of the law to an inward righteousness, then you won't inherit the kingdom of God. It it doesn't uh, matter how radical you are. The whole thing of Matthew 5 through 7 is is a exposing of outward righteousness not motivated by inward love and righteousness. That's what the whole thing is about. And then it concludes in a, an indictment on the false leaders, the false shepherds, the false prophets in, in the Pharisees and teachers of the law that they are ravenous wolves, which is uh, a reference to Ezekiel 13 and 22. They're ravenous wolves, even though they look like sheep outwardly and they look clean and good outwardly, they devour God's people in, uh, in greed and uh, self-exaltation. Ezekiel 22 just lays it out uh, real clearly. So they devour people and, uh, and even have uh, miracles associated with their ministry. And uh, most people don't associate miracles with the Pharisees, but uh, they didn't believe in angels for no reason. They didn't believe in angels for no reason. And they didn't believe in the resurrection for no reason. And so uh, that's what Matthew 7 is about. And so the call in light of the day of the Lord is repentance of finding righteousness before God in your good deeds and being delivered of that delusion. It's easy for the wicked, right? Those things are readily condemnable. But the issue of the cross is, um, is finding righteousness uh, not of ourselves even when we walk in outward cleanness because whether you walk in outward cleanness or you don't, all human beings are in the same boat. And so uh, John 3 is Jesus. John 3 is, is another just really uh, blazing rebuke against the Pharisees. It usually doesn't get interpreted that way, but that's, uh, that's uh, it's, uh, he speaks to Nicodemus in the you, plural, referencing you, uh, 
sect of you Pharisees. And so he's making the point in John uh, 3 of the snake on the pole that actually uh, the Pharisees are in the same boat as the Israelites in the wilderness. And, uh, and so he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must, must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life at the coming of the Lord and the resurrection. And so uh, we worked through this a, a, a little bit, and, um, and then the proclamation throughout the book of Acts always involves the believing in the crucified Messiah as the means of the forgiveness of sins unto the resurrection. And so as I was praying this morning, uh, the, I was just kind of praying, and all of a sudden the Lord said, I have a contention. And I was like, all right, because if you were here last night, I just skipped over that last bit uh, on the contention of the cross, and uh, I was like, all right, and uh, but it doesn't, it's, I, and it, it just kept hearing that, I have a contention, and, and I felt like the Lord was saying, I can either just avoid the issue and not make it a contention with you, and everything's a lot easier, and you all get... Uh, rod up and and uh, uh, or I can point out the contention in the New Testament and it was a very intense contention but because we don't identify and understand the hope that the Pharisees had and the issue of righteousness and the contention of the cross the the Pharisaical movement has no real connection to us has no real connection to us and so um I'm going to go ahead and do that. In the early church, there was a contention, and it flowed right out of the Pharisaical movement into believers uh, in Christ Jesus from Acts 2, and those who were there for the feast and were converted. And then out of that group of uh, converts uh, based in Jerusalem, you had a a self-identified group of people that called themselves the circumcision within the church. And they walked, they used the law as their uh, model of discipleship in light of the return of Jesus and the age to come. The law is good so long as you relate to it rightly, as, as Paul says in First Timothy. But uh, they were relating to it wrongly and uh, had not been delivered of the self-delusion of self-righteousness. And so there's only two groups in the early church. There are true believers, true brothers, and false brothers of the circumcision. There's the, the, the body of Christ crucified and the church, and there is the circumcision which have been alienated from Christ though they call themselves believers, and though they believe Jesus is the Messiah and that God has anointed him, but they've actually been alienated from him in their self-righteousness. And then after that, once the hope got perverted to an uh, a immaterial heavenly destiny hope, then you confound the issue. And you have the issue of self-righteousness versus substitute righteousness confounded with what that's going to attain and achieve in the resurrection versus uh, eternal existence of the soul. And so 
this is where I always, I, I, the struggle comes in. Now there's a two-fold contention. There's a contention over what the hope is, and there's a contention over the nature of righteousness. In the early church, there wasn't a contention over what the hope was, right? It was just Jesus is going to return. He's going to make a new heavens and new earth. He's going to raise the wicked, raise the righteous. We're going to have a resurrected body, live forever in righteousness. The earth is going to be fixed like it was in the beginning. Simple, simple hope, simple, <clears throat> but then that got convoluted, and so there's a contention there that you have to deal with, and then you have to deal with the contention of how you attain it. And so the, the Reformation tradition is a tradition of saying, even though it's in light of the heavenly destiny, it dealt with the contention of righteousness, that there is no justification in righteousness before God except by an ardent focus on that snake on the pole, so to say. And it's not like we do nothing. That snake on the pole was the righteousness from God, and our response is an ardent focus on that snake on the pole by which we're saved. And so it's not our own righteousness, but our, our part to play is an ardent response and repentance and focus on the sacrifice of God. And so the contention, I just want to work through a few passages on, oh, we're out of time, look at that. I just want to work through a few passages that uh, show this. And so uh, the first one, Galatians. Galatians is just the most radically flaming, contentious book in the whole scripture. I mean just blazing, crazy contentious. (laughs) <laughs> like it's, if you understand all the dynamics it's just like dude settle down bro and so uh, Paul in uh, chapter 2 is opposing Peter to his face when he came down uh, to Antioch and he uh, before certain men came from James he used to eat Who you know? so he's talking about the two pillars of the church whatever they're reputed to be to me doesn't I makes no difference to me but so Peter comes down from James and he used to eat with the Gentiles but when they arrived he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group and this is the group at Acts 15 that said the Gentiles must be circumcised and obey the law of Moses to be saved and the, the logic was, look, they already received the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of their resurrection. And the prophets say that there's going to be Gentiles in the age to come in the resurrection. So why are we forcing them to be circumcised? And so, and so uh, the circumcision group divided out from that point at Acts 15. And uh, Paul was extremely contentious against them. And in every New Testament of Pauline epistle, the contention is either really intense like Galatians, moderately intense like Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, or he just makes a few jabs like in Thessalonians and and, uh, Timothy. And so Ephesians 2, he's just working through the nature of our, uh, the hope of our calling and that uh, in the cross we've been forgiven of our sins, and this is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
The, the cart goes behind the horse, not vice versa, which God prepared in advance for us to do because at the day of the Lord, it's the issue of the heart that ultimately salvation happens. When we stand before Jesus and everything's exposed, if we, if we relate to God on the basis of our fasting and prayer, on the basis of our giving to the poor, on the basis of our ministry and miracles and Lord did we not drive out demons and this and this if we relate to the Lord on whatever basis we receive a lake of fire but if we relate to the Lord at a heart level and we cultivate that in this age that I am the worst of sinners I don't even recognize a half of it a quarter of it a tenth of it and I just throw myself at the mercy of God have mercy on me a sinner in light of the cross then that will be the confession of our heart at the appearing of Christ Jesus and we will enter into His kingdom and, and receive mercy. But it's the issue of that faith at the heart level that's the turning point on the day of the Lord. And so that's why Paul, justification by faith is not a theological issue. It's not just a doctrinal issue. When Jesus descends in fire, it is everything. It's everything. It turns everything, your eternal destiny, a lake of fire or a resurrected body, it determines everything. And so that's why he's so ardent about it. So he says, verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at, you, that, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, etc. And then Philippians, he gets uh, really nuts. And so he, uh, so he, Philippians 3 verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision. We're the circumcision. Because we worship by the Spirit of God who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason to put confidence. Being the Hebrew of Hebrew, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees, etc. I should have confidence that at the return of Jesus I will be raised in glory. I should have confidence. But I leave all of that behind. And I identify myself and, and relate to God on the basis of Christ crucified. That that is the only hope I have before God at His appearing. And then he goes through the whole bit and then he comes down pressing on from that means of righteousness. Verse 18, For as often I told you before and now say even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross for their destiny is destruction and their God is their appetites. And the, and the NASB translates it as it should, appetites. All the other ones, they, they, they translate appetites as their stomach or their belly, which that's not. He's quoting Isaiah 56, in light of those who keep the command of the Lord, then the Lord at the return of Jesus will bring them up to his mountain and the Messianic temple, and they will enter in, and they will be pillars in the temple of God in the age to come. 
Isaiah 56. And then right after that, verse 9, Come, all you beasts of the field. Come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They're all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. And so this is, Paul references the same uh, uh, verse in uh, Romans uh, 16. And when he says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people, etc. And so he's referencing again the circumcision group and the appetites of the self-righteous reflected in Matthew 23 when Jesus is revealing the appetites. Outwardly, you're clean, but inwardly, you're full of greed and selfishness. And you have dead men's bones and all kinds of wicked appetites and motives on the inside. So this is what he's referencing, Isaiah 56 in Philippians 3, they're enemies of the cross. And this will get more clear when we jump back to Galatians when he, when he calls Peter, the pillar of the church, an enemy of the cross and alienated from Christ Jesus. And so he says uh, they're enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction because they believe their destiny is the resurrection. Their God is their appetites. They walk according, not according to the Holy Spirit, but according to their own desires. And their glory is in their shame. What they glory in, in their own righteousness, will be their shame on the day of the Lord. Their mind is set on earthly things. Things of this age, of honor and reputation and respect and these type of things. But our citizenship is in heaven where Jesus sits at the right hand and He will descend and He will reward us according to our faith and righteousness uh, according to the cross, and we eagerly await a Savior from there uh, who will transform our lowly bodies, etc. And so Galatians 2, if you want to flip back, Galatians 2 and, and Colossians, Ephesians and Colossians are known as the twin epistles. And so just FYI, uh, uh, Colossians, uh, Colossians 2 is referencing the same circumcision group. And people, just because they go on about angelic visitations, people think that that's therefore not the circumcision. But uh, the, uh, even if an angel appears to you, this is what he says in Galatians, even if an angel appears, and, uh, and that is how it goes down. It's, uh, it's not a matter of... Uh, of uh, God, uh, of whatever. Uh, Colossians 2 is the same bit. And so um, Galatians 1, we'll just do a brief overview of Galatians for the next 15 minutes. And then uh, I want to make a call to you to make a decision about which side of the contention you're on. And so Galatians, just uh, I'll try to do it as briefly as possible. And so Galatians 1.1, Paul an apostle sent not from men nor by men. <laughs> you, you ever listen to people and they say things and it's like, how do you say that, man? Like, what? <laughs> right? Why does he say that? By 
not sent from men or by men. In contrast to who and why. Right? Okay. But by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this evil age and give us grace and peace and reconciliation with God according to the will of God and of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion trying to pervert the gospel of Christ because everybody understood the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the Messiah, the good news of the resurrection. That's all the same hope. And so the issue came down in the early church to the issue of righteousness before God and how do you inherit those things. And so the gospel becomes shorthand for how do you receive the kingdom and how do you receive a righteousness, how... How are you right before God so you can receive those things? And so Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation at the return of Jesus and the resurrection for everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile, because in it is a righteousness from God. And then Philippians where he says, uh, no, Colossians where he says, um, once you were alienated from God and enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If, if you continue in your faith in the crucifixion of Christ, his physical body, establish firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel you heard that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I've become a servant. And so Galatians 1, they pervert the gospel in saying, and they put the, the works and the cart before the horse, and they find their righteousness. And the inside, the internal of their heart, is that in their deeds, in their outward righteousness, they stand before God. And therefore, they develop in the church a culture of, if you live up to this, these deeds, then you're good. You're good with me and you're good with God. <clears throat> Rather than if you live a life of confession of your wickedness and a culture of repentance and humility and faith in the cross and that everybody's on the same playing field and you relate according to that in compassion and, and uh, mercy, then you'll be saved. And so Galatians 1 Here's where it gets a little nuts. But even if we or an angel from heaven, so he's not just saying that, abstractly out of no context because these guys are having angelic visitations dreams and visions that are speaking angels of light that are speaking that you have to walk according to this uh, discipleship model according to the law to be saved at the return of Jesus and so let him be eternally condemned right so the eternally condemned bit is the lake of fire and we have already said, so I say again, if anybody's preaching, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win approval of men or of God? And so in everybody's mind, he works through who the men are in chapter 2. Of men or of God? 
Or am I trying to please men? If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from God. He didn't receive a new revelation of what the hope was. Everybody knew what the hope was. The issue is he received a revelation about the significance and meaning of the Messiah being crucified. Why is the death of that guy any different than the death of John the Baptist or the death of any of the prophets before? Why is the death of the Messiah different in the Lord's eyes? And that's the revelation that the Lord accounts the death of that man as an atonement and a substitution for the sins of man as the basis for salvation in the resurrection at the return of Jesus. You understand? That's the revelation, the good news and the gospel that he receives by revelation. It's the nature of righteousness. It's not a change in what is, is hoped to be attained. It's a revelation of what it meant that the Messiah we hoped in was crucified on a pole. And so, uh, on a cross. <laughs> There's a messianic cult that really believes he was only crucified on a pole. So I don't want to be identified with that. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> so you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely the tradition of my fathers, etc. He goes up to Jerusalem. He meets James. Fourteen years later, he goes up to Jerusalem. He meets all the re reputed pillars of the church, etc. Whatever they are makes no difference to me. And then he says, one of those pewter, uh, pillars came from another pillar, Peter from James, up to Antioch, and he separated himself from the Gentiles, condemning the Gentiles, creating a culture of superiority, implying that at the day of Christ Jesus, the circumcision group will be saved and the Gentiles will not be saved. <clears throat> he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined with him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. His right-hand man, even Barnabas, was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. You, you're a Jew and are supposed to walk in righteousness and truth, yet you live like a, a, a Gentile in wickedness and, and uh, superiority and self-exaltation. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We Jews are cultivated by the law in recognition of the state of man and our depravity. The law has cultivated us to recognize our state and that we need a sacrifice from God and a righteousness from God. And we sing it every week in the synagogue, the Song of Moses, which concludes in Deuteronomy 34 that the Lord himself will make atonement for his land and his people. The Lord will make atonement. And so it should be very evident to everyone that the Lord will lay upon the back of his servant the iniquities of us all, and he will bear our iniquities. And so he says, we Jews by birth should know this and should recognize how to relate to the Lord in, in relation to the law. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And so this is what happens. Whenever there's a clear declaration 
of a substitute righteousness against a righteousness of ourselves, there's always the accusation from the self-righteous that therefore if you preach that and believe that, people will not walk in righteousness. It's the eternal accusation and it happens, it's happened throughout church history. And every time justification by faith gets preached, there's always the accusation that comes in from the other direction as in Romans 3, that we're so slanderously reported as saying, let us do evil that good may result. And you have to deal with the kindness and the severity of the Lord. And so this is what Paul is always trying to deal with. Don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh. Use your freedom to walk in gratitude and obedience motivated out of thanksgiving and gratitude as we celebrate every week in communion. Use your freedom to serve one another and walk in love, etc. But uh, so, uh, so then he, this is what he's answering in verse 17. He's answering that accusation of the circumcision group. <clears throat> because the circumcision group is watching very closely the community of those who believe in a righteousness from God. And they notice that people use it for their own means, because that's the nature of human depravity. And they use it to indulge themselves, and they walk in unrighteousness. And so they infiltrate their, their ranks, false brothers, and they use it to accuse them and say, look, I told you, this whole doctrine is, is off base, and it's going to end in, in destruction at the day of the Lord, because look, you're walking in unrighteousness now. And so, uh, so this is what Paul says if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? So if depravity and sin is manifest in our, met, in our midst, while we have our eyes focused on the snake on the pole, does that mean that God promotes that sin? Obviously not. It just means that we're sinners, and it should drive us to crying out for mercy even more. You have a model of discipleship based on your own righteousness that when sin is, is manifest, you just pound it down and, hey, let's sit down, let's work out discipleship and accountability schedule, etc., etc., and you bind men up and you shut them off from God and the mercy of God in the cross. I've seen it a thousand times a thousand times, and it creates twice the children of Gehenna as they were before they put their faith in the Lord. It really does every time. And so and this is what he says, that if it becomes evident that we're sinners, it just, it, he says, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. So he's saying the same thing in Romans 7, that through the law, I died to finding righteousness in myself. That's all he's saying. And I cast myself on the mercy of God. And I live between now and the day of the Lord in that light, and I relate on the basis of mercy. That's how I relate. And so he says, uh, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so, again, the, the picture of the snake on the pole, this is how he's viewing that, crucified with Christ. In light of all the serpents that are our own doing, I find my identity and I relate on the basis of the sacrifice and the snake on the pole. And 
I have been crucified with that snake on the pole. I identify with it. And the life I live, the, 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 the sacrifice lives in me. And that is how I relate to God. It's just kind of figurative language. But that's, uh, that's what he's saying. I live based on the cross. And I find my identity and how I relate to God based on that. And that becomes clear by the next verse. Because that seems like, well, you could interpret that however. But the next verse reiterates it. He says, the life I live in the body, referencing this age, the body of death, between now and the return of Jesus. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Meaning the life between now and the return of Jesus and I receive a new body, I live day in and day out according to the, the cross and him giving himself for me. Because we all have to relate in some way based on our depravity. And we either say, well, I'm done with you and I'm done with trying to walk in righteousness and I'm done with trying to deal with my depravity and I just go off into the world, the rebellious, or you relate on the base of your own righteousness and getting your act together and discipline, etc., and self-righteousness. Or you relate on the basis of mercy and you relate out of thanksgiving and gratitude. And so people do the, you know, you can give to the poor in all three ways. You can give to the poor out of gratitude and serving your master. You can give to the poor to, out of the motivation to make up and be more awesome. You can give to the poor just because you're a good guy and you're trying to build up the self-esteem since you're cut off from everything else. And so this is how it, it's all an issue of the heart, and this is what Paul's trying to establish. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And this is where it's contentious, because Paul's not just making a theological argument to the Galatians, he's recounting a story in front of the whole Antiochian church, when he points out Peter in front of everybody, and the whole thing he's saying to Peter, that you've not been crucified with Christ, that the life you live in the body, you live by faith in your own awesomeness. And you have set aside the grace of God, Peter, because to you, Christ died for nothing. You confess that he was the Christ, you believe he's the Christ. But you just believe he died, he ascended, he's going to return, and because of your own awesomeness, you're going to enter into the kingdom and sit at his right hand. And he relates on the basis of his own righteousness, and there's a culture being developed. And so this is why I press the culture of the cross, because it's the culture that's developed within a group of people that severs them from the head. And it severs them from walking in truth and righteousness in their own depravity in relation to the holiness of God based on the cross. And so then he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? So then he shifts back to the Galatians and he says, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Before your very eyes, the Messiah was crucified. What does that mean? He says, I would like to learn just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or believing with what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit, after coming to God, have mercy on me and having nothing to offer, and he baptized you with the Spirit as a confirmation that he'll raise you from the dead at his return, now you relate to him based on your own deeds. 
instead of producing deeds of righteousness out of gratitude that you've been forgiven. He says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or believing what you heard after beginning the Spirit? Are you now trying to attain the goal of the resurrection by human effort? You see his logic? Have you suffered so much for nothing? And if it was really for nothing, does God give a spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard, that, that the Messiah was crucified for sin? And so the movement of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament from Acts 2 all the way through is actually a confirmation to the cross. Broadly, if you look at broadly why the Holy Spirit was poured out, it was a confirmation to the church that believed in Christ crucified. And it was a contention and confrontation against those who believed in the coming of the Messiah and the resurrection, but related on their own self-righteousness. You see what I'm saying? And it's really no different in the church today, even though the hope is skewed and perverted to a heavenly destiny or a kingdom now. But it always comes down, the contention comes down to the preaching of the cross. And you'll always find that the cross is either never talked about, and you'll see decades of teaching and never any preaching on the cross, or the cross will be pimped according to whatever selfish desire and vain ambition is being preached. Okay, and so this is what I want to bring a, uh, a response to you this morning, is that... I understand what stream I'm standing in. And I understand all of the things and the waves of teaching that are tossed people around in this stream. And so what I want you to do to make a commitment, you, I'm not, you don't have to, I'm just saying if you would like to take some time, pray about it, read about it, etc., that's totally fine. But I would like to call you up if the worship team, if you guys want to come up, and we'll just have a time of response and, and ministry. And you can be dismissed if you'd like to. Um, but if you'd like a to make a commitment today that I'm going to be on the side of the contention that preaches the cross and holds the centrality of the cross as the pillar of Christianity, that this is actually what makes people Christian, that they believe in Christ crucified, and all that communicates to the depravity of man, to the holiness of God, and to the nature of righteousness between. And that the cross is what is the dividing line between what is an actual believer and what is not a believer and what is a false brother. You see what I'm saying? And so uh, I'm going to pray for us. And, and if you would like to respond by uh, let's all stand and... and uh, and if you would like to respond by coming up and, and consecrating yourself in that way, that from this day forward, you will preach nothing but Christ crucified, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2. And that you will dedicate yourself and keep your relationship before the Lord based upon the cross and not based upon whatever culture of righteousness that is set up. And so, Lord, we're just grateful to you. We're grateful to you that you saved us out of our wickedness and that you saved us out of our self-righteousness, God. That you saved us from all forms of darkness, that you saved us from this present evil age. And we thank you, God, that you gave yourself 
is an offering for our sin. Even what we don't understand, that you gave yourself in mercy. And we're just grateful. And we present ourselves to you today as grateful for the cross. And we give thanks for the body of your Son, Father. And we give thanks for the blood that was poured out. We give thanks for those things, God. And we ask you, God, to cleanse our hearts by the Holy Spirit from unrighteousness. We ask you for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to confirm the message of the cross, to strengthen us in our journey on a narrow road in the cross, that we might actually attain to the resurrection. We want to be identified with Him in His sufferings, that we might attain to the resurrection, that we might know Christ crucified, God. And we ask you to stir us in zeal for that, God, to stir us in zeal that we will we'll be able to stand against the zeal of false doctrines, that we'll be able to stand against the zeal of self-righteousness, God, that you would give us zeal for your love, that you would give us zeal that you would stir us up for what you have done, that we would love you all the more because of what how you have loved us, God. And so we present ourselves before you in the blood of Jesus this morning.